0: My personal experience and the cases that we have financed have been three of them are in my top five positive experiences as a lawyer or in, in terms of how I feel at the end of the day for having been a part of something. Our ability to give a slingshot and a rock to a David to take down a Goliath is awesome. And our cases have been overwhelmingly
1: Welcome to How I Lawyer, a podcast where I talk to attorneys from throughout the profession about what they do, why they do it, and how they do it well. I'm your host, Jonah Perlin, a law professor in Washington, D.C. Now let's get started. Hello and welcome back. In today's episode, I'm excited to speak with my friend and former colleague, Matt Blumenstein, who's currently the head of underwriting and the deputy general counsel at Statera Capital, a commercial litigation finance company based in Chicago. Before entering the world of litigation finance, Matt was a litigator at Williams & Connolly in Washington, D.C., and a law clerk to Judge Karen LeCraft Henderson on the United States Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. Matt's a graduate of Stanford University, go Cardinal, and Vanderbilt University School of Law, go Commodores. I'm so grateful he agreed to join the podcast. Welcome, Matt.
0: Thanks, John. I'm grateful to be here. It's great to speak with you.
1: So to start off, I'm hoping you could give uh, me a little primer about what litigation finance is and how it fits into the broader litigation system in the United States.
0: Sure. So litigation finance in most general terms is where a a financial firm like Skatera Capital, where I work, provides funds to uh, a party that has a claim in litigation and in return gets an entitlement to share in that party's success in the litigation if the litigation is successful. So to give you an example that's um, very basic and yet completely accurate and describes much of what we see, Imagine there's a small company that contracts with a big company. The small company is going to help the big company with a project. The small company does what it's supposed to do. The project is successful. The small company sends an invoice to the big company saying, here's what you owe me under the contract. The big company looks at the invoice and decides it doesn't really feel like paying or it doesn't feel like paying the amount that it owes. And so it conjures arguments as to why it doesn't have to pay. So the small company then has a solid breach of contract claim. Mm. problem is, as you know, litigation is expensive. And the big company is going to have great lawyers. Almost all big companies do. And those great lawyers are going to figure out creative ways to argue and to argue that the, the money isn't owed and to make the litigation as uh, expensive and extensive as possible in all likelihood. So the small company wants to bring a claim, but it may not have a million dollars or $2 million sitting around to pay great lawyers to do battle with the big company's great lawyers, or it may have better things to do with its money or things it would rather do with its money, build its business. So that's where we come in and that's where litigation finance comes in. We provide the funds in that example for the small company to pay its lawyers and other litigation expenses. And in return, we share if the little company is successful in its uh, claim against the big company, we get a part of the proceeds. And if the small company is not successful, we get nothing.
1: If you only get paid when when the little company is successful, I would imagine it takes a lot of work to decide which cases you're willing to take on. So can you talk a little bit about that process?
0: Yeah, that's my job. And that's underwriting in this context. It's evaluating inquiries. We get inquiries from commercial entities or their lawyers, and they tell us about the case or send us the public pleadings or what have you. And we dive in, I dive in and try to determine whether it's a good fit for us. It's, after 10 years of practicing as a general, predominantly civil litigator, my job now is to assess the prospects of litigation for the purposes of determining whether the cases make sense for funding
1: yeah i am curious about how you get cases so you indicated that part of it is people come to you either clients or lawyers are you also going out and doing sales work to find a particular type of case doing some sort of version of legal arbitrage to find the place where your money can make the most bang for its buck
0: my firm doesn't do a ton of that in the sense that i think you're describing there are uh, players in this field who do a sort of mass solicitation model. In fact, I saw a comment in your Twitter feed when you posted this, this podcast was coming up and said, do you have any question for somebody who works at litigation finance? And, and somebody said, how do I get them to stop spamming me about my case <laughs> that, that, isn't, that doesn't even have damages involved? So there are uh, players out there that some of them, more smartly than others, try to leverage sort of big data and Mm -hmm. proactively contact lawyers. I mean, I think they basically scrape PACER and send emails to lawyers saying, basically, do you need financing for your case? PACER
1: being the public sort of federal public docket online system and where you could find every case if you're willing to pay for it. But yeah.
0: Right. So we don't do that. What we do is develop and and nurture relationships with great lawyers and great companies and colleagues of ours or of mine who have gone on to go in-house and lawyers across the country who have practices that are good fits for what we do. So we do pay a lot of attention to building those relationships, but we don't go out and solicit individual cases en masse.
1: Yeah. So I was going to ask about that also. I know that some litigation finance firms focus on individual cases and others focus on either a whole firm's worth of cases, a whole business's worth of cases, some other sort of book of cases to spread the risk out. Can you talk about what options are out there and also what your company does in particular?
0: Yeah, there's two types of funding deals, I guess. One is single case investments and another is portfolio investments. And if you stay abreast of the sort of trade press in our industry, there's more and more activity around and competition for portfolios. I think is interesting and it's actually very relevant to our particular company, the reason for that is that the sort of first generation of litigation finance firms in the U.S., which really came to came into being you know, within the last 10 or 20 years, grew very quickly and haven't necessarily scaled up enormously. So they have lots and lots of capital under management, asset under management, investors' money, and their business is to deploy that capital in litigation finance. And they have broadly determined that the best way to do that and Quite understandably, and you see this in other areas of fin- finance as well, is to try to make big investments instead of making lots of little investments. Because, mm-hmm. as you indicated earlier, picking which cases to back requires great care. The calculation of many of these companies seems to be these litigation finance firms seems to be do uh, fewer deals that are very large, and a great way to do that is through a portfolio. And what that means is you go to a great law firm that does a significant amount of plaintiff side work, oftentimes for partial or full contingency, and you fund that firm's whole basket of a portfolio mm-hmm. of cases, and the firm uses those funds to do its work. And your return as the funder comes from the, the whole basket. So it's a it's an example of you know what's referred to as cross-collateralization, right? That, you know, even if some of the cases in the portfolio and being utterly unsuccessful, if some of them are successful, then that's you know potentially a success writ large for the litigation finance firm. So that's what a portfolio is. Mm -hmm. My firm bucks that trend and was created in part in response to that dynamic I described. We focus predominantly on single case investments, and we are willing to do smaller investments than most of the uh, players who have been around for a while. We can do big investments, and we have, but we are uniquely able to do smaller investments and do a lot of them which again makes you know it directly affects my job my job is to be efficient careful certainly but pretty quick so that we can do more deals at a, a lower size and not compete as much with the older players who are now increasingly fighting over the biggest deals
1: right but well, it sounds almost like By doing more small deals, you're taking kind of a portfolio approach, but you pick the portfolio individually as opposed to the portfolio being determined by a single law firm or a single uh, business. Does that sound right? That's true.
0: That does sound right. And we're growing. You know, we've really been. Started investing in earnest when they hired me almost a year ago. And since then, we've been closing deals. And every time we close a new deal and I look at my list, I breathe a little bit easier. (laughs) Right, (laughs) right. We're diverse. I mean, we're diversified. And it is a portfolio in this model. And, you know, the bigger player, Burford is the most famous player in this space. And they're a public company. So they actually Mm -hmm. have a lot of data out. And it's no secret that in this business, You don't actually have to bat a hundred, you know, a thousand, as long as you have, you know, a portfolio of cases.
1: I have two follow-ups to that. The first one is you talk about a small case versus a big case. For people who have never experienced sort of litigation at all, What is what kind of scope and size, order of magnitude is a big case, and what order of magnitude when you say a small case?
0: So, as I indicated, the larger players... Effectively, we literally have floors these days where they won't consider requests below a certain amount. And mm-hmm. we actually get a lot of our inquiries by basically collaborative referrals from those firms because mm. they want to be helpful and professional with people who approach them, but they just categorically can't consider small cases. So the floor, depending on the firm, is typically, to my understanding these days, is Three, four, or five million dollars in legal fees. I shouldn't back say legal fees so much as, I mean, to be more precise in this area, the request uh, for funding. So sometimes we don't fund a hundred percent of the legal fees. So right. it's a little bit more complex than I, than I indicated. But as a you know, rough back
1: of the envelope, that yeah, about yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. yeah. I guess my other follow-up is the example you gave at the beginning is the small company that wants to bring this suit and has a meritorious suit and just needs the, the cash to pay the lawyers. And then when we started talking about how you find cases, it sounds like it's often the lawyers that come as opposed to the clients. And that makes some sense, right? Because the lawyers are the one, especially for legal fees, who have to you know, keep their lights on and fly to take the deposition. And they're in some ways, they're confident in themselves that they can win the case, but they're cash poor and confidence high. <laughs> and so it sounds like lawyers are the ones who are actually your clients, not to use the lawyer client paradigm, but they're the ones who are you're helping out. Can you talk about the balance of the three players? The the client in the legal sense, the lawyer, and then you as the litigation finance firm who's brought in to help foot the bill
0: yes so in virtually every case, in, in most cases, virtually every case, our counterparty is the claimant, is the company for, for a number of reasons. And we are not their lawyers. We hold sacrosanct the the relationship between them and their lawyers. And we are not a proxy for that or, or in any way a replacement for that. And we have a very different relationship. They are our counterparties. They are not our clients in the mm-hmm. sense of an attorney-client relationship. And... The lawyers, yes, more often than not, the lawyers make the introduction. And litigation finance is growing, you know, like a weed in the United States. It's been around much longer. Its roots are actually in Australia and the the UK, but it's really taken off in the United States, as I indicated, over the last decade or so. But it's growing like a weed in large part because lawyers understand the value that it brings and the, the solutions that it provides. I want to hear more about that. What problem is it solving? It's solving problems for the lawyers and for the claimants. We were talking about lawyers, so let's start there. The problem it solves for the lawyers is most of the most sort of prominent firms, let's leave aside for now, set aside the population of traditional plaintiff's contingency firms. They have their own business model, and that's not really who I'm talking about here. I'm talking about the types of firms that you and I worked for and just big law, let's say big law, Okay, Mm -hmm. even though the model is certainly relevant below big law, but uh, they still predominantly operate on the billable hour and the firm's profit per partner revenue basically depends on the billable hour. And a junior partner or a senior associate is um, rising or falling with the ability to generate business, which translates to billable hours, fees, and, and collected fees. A lot of the types of claimants that I'm describing can't afford or don't want to pay on the billable hour model for great law firms. And and even if they do, frankly, some of the biggest or best law firms in the country won't take them as clients because they don't have the demonstrated wherewithal to pay the bills down the road. I don't know if you have this experience, but I've had some experience firsthand and vicariously of junior partners trying to bring in business and having or senior associates and having the intake committee or whatever a given law firm calls it. Reject the business because of basically the financial profile of the would-be client. It could be a colleague of yours from law school is now GC at a startup in the, you know, in Northern Virginia, and they have a claim and they want to hire the firm that you work for, a great firm, and the firm won't take them because uh, they don't think that they can afford them and they're not confident in their ability or willingness to pay in the long haul. And, that, so, and then from the client's perspective, they don't particularly want to pay uh, full freight to top tier law firms mm-hmm. and, and may not be able to pay, but they want that quality of lawyering. And, you know, one obvious solution for this, it's been around forever, is the contingency where your lawyer uh, doesn't charge you hourly, doesn't charge you as you go, but instead gets a a fixed percentage of the recovery based on TV and and slightly more reliable experience i think we all grow up thinking about that as being about a third to 40% of the recovery goes to a contingency lawyer and that you know is most prominent in i'd say the personal injury space you know right. it won't cost you anything we'll do your case and then we get caught 40% of what you get so that model is out there, and in some ways, litigation finance, commercial litigation finance, what I do is just a synthetic contingency fee. But the reason that a synthetic contingency fee is necessary is because the most of the sort of top-tier law firms that claimants would want to do, would want to have on their cases, don't do contingency fees. But as I said, they're set up on the billable hour. The legal industry is evolving and firms are uh, increasingly willing to consider investing in themselves, betting on themselves, but it's still very, they're very wary of it. It's just set up such that partners are paid uh, you know, quarterly or annually based on receipts from that mm-hmm. period. There's not a, a long time horizon for returns for them. As the the system is set up now, and it would get complicated, right? If you have a big law firm that has a litigation practice and a transactional practice, and the litigators want to do things on contingency and want their pay to be based on the recovery from their contingent matters... Do the transactional lawyers share in that? How do you divvy up the pie in a situation like that? So long story short, firms aren't, the sort of traditional white shoe firms aren't uh, particularly interested in moving from the billable hour or at least they're moving slowly from the billable hour. And claimants don't like the billable hour and it's very expensive. And we solve that problem. We bridge that gap. We, so we pay the lawyers there as they go a billable basis. So the junior partner who brought in a client and helped them find litigation finance, they are getting paid on the hour and thus improving their standing at their firm and sure. solidifying their position as a rising partner. And the claimant isn't paying the billable hours, we are. And at the end of the day, the claimant and we share in the in the recovery. As typically, by the way, that usually in, in most cases, we and every other litigation finance firm insists that the law firm does participate, have some skin in the game. And what that looks like is they'll provide a discount on their billable rate. So instead of charging their rack rate, hundred percent of their you know notionally standard rates. They right. will discount that by some amount. And that discount is treated as an investment in the case. We pay the discounted rates as the case progresses. And upon recovery, the recovery is split up between the claimant who gets the lion's share. That's very important to us and should be very important to the lawyers. We get our return and the lawyers get typically more than 100%, more than their rack rate. So they take a discount on the front end as skin in the game. And then if they succeed, they end up getting more than their rack rate, which again, for a junior partner is beautiful. They're getting collections as they go. They're putting up billable hours on their ledger. And at the end of the day, their you know realization rate or whatever the firm calls it, utilization rate or whatever, is actually higher than their peers because of the sort of success premium. Yeah,
1: I mean, look, at a high level, and I'm I'm not particularly familiar with this business, which is why I'm so glad you were willing to come on, and I don't want to romanticize it either, right? But it does, everybody ends up getting less than potentially, although maybe more if you're truly successful, but everybody's taking the potential that they're going to get a little bit less than they would have if your company doesn't come in but it solves a lot of inefficiency. The legal profession has been talking about trying to find ways to solve these inefficiencies for far longer than the last 10 or 20 years. And you're providing an external answer to solve the ine- some of the inefficiencies of the billable hour, of the fact that we don't have fee shifting, that we don't have winner-take-all structures like they do in the UK. And that sounds that sounds pretty good. I am curious about the negatives. And I know that there are some folks that have concerns about the increase in litigation finance. One of those concerns that you hinted at is this question of professional responsibility and ethics, right? Lawyers are uh, trained. It is our core value that we provide our clients service and we serve our clients and their interest. Adding this third party in and a third party with investment money and skin in the game, I think makes some particularly lawyers a little bit skittish. I'd love to hear more about how you think about those ethical issues and sort of brass tacks how you protect the clients in that system.
0: Sure. Thank you for bringing that up. It's an incredibly important topic and one that we like to focus on as much as possible. And I like to focus on as much as possible. Two things to put on the table right away, two just guiding lights, foundational principles, cornerstones of what we do. First, we do not control the litigation in any way, shape, or form, which makes my job particularly fraught and interesting. The only control we have is, is in the underwriting, is in the structuring of the deal, is in the mm-hmm. modeling of incentives and outcomes. Once we do a deal and provide funding, we are passive observers we are along for the ride we are in the back seat if that we are in the yeah that, that even gives us too much credit we're passive observers we don't control the litigation we don't tell our counterparties what to do we don't tell them where to settle we don't tell them any anything and we can't Relatedly, and you know, just as importantly, we do not interfere with the attorney-client relationship. The decisions about what to do in the litigation are to be made by the client with the loyal and zealous or diligent representation of counsel. I remember when I came in, zealous was part of the rules. There are five of us, it's the Terra Capital, and four are former litigators, and the fifth is a former CFO. And we all have spent, you know, a decade or more each one case 40 years, in one case about 20 years, and in my case over 10 years, representing clients. And we hold that relationship, the attorney client relationship, to be sacrosanct. So those are two very important principles. Now Mm -hmm. somebody may say, doesn't just the fact that you're providing funding provide some sort of or impose some Mm -hmm. sort of tacit control and The answer is no. As I say, we don't have control over the litigation. All of our control comes from modeling on the front end. And it's not control. Our protection. Our protection comes not from controlling the litigation and telling the counterparty what to do and telling the lawyer what to do, which we can't do and we wouldn't do. It comes from modeling out the different ways that this case could go, the different results that could happen, and how we do and how, more importantly, the counterparty and the lawyer do under every reasonably foreseeable circumstance. And when you say you don't participate,
1: are you at least able to check in to see status? I imagine you do something at least to just keep abreast of the situation. But even that, I think, might cause some people concern.
0: So yeah, I monitor our investments and ninety percent of that I'd say is what are effectively PACER alerts. You defined PACER earlier, the equivalent, the state equivalent. I actually get them through Lexis. We I have uh, Lexis, not Leslaw, but I think Leslaw has the exact same thing where for a given case you can sign up for alerts anytime something hits the docket. so 90 percent of my monitoring is just seeing what happens in the case and it's fun it's a lot of fun to follow cases that way all of this is a lot of fun and you can imagine you know if if you've been if you practiced for five or ten years you can read between the lines even in unexciting pleadings even in discovery disputes or the like you can fill in the the context to some extent but yes i also check in with and we do uh, have a you know, contractual right to updates. But that's what they are. They're updates. They are not instructions. And they don't interfere with the attorney-client privilege. You'll you probably find this interesting, and I'm sure some listeners who are... Any, anyone who's still listening would be curious to know about <laughs> privilege and work protection. And the, the short answer is that... The attorney uh, work product protection has been overwhelmingly held to apply to work product that's shared with litigation finance firms, Mm -hmm. but perhaps more precisely, work product protection is not destroyed by being shared with litigation finance firms. So a firm can provide us on the front end uh, work product without... um, any real risk of it being discoverable to the other side, provided that they follow best practices. Privilege, not so. If we do not and would not allow and actively avoid a situation where, you know, in a room, quote unquote, with a lawyer giving advice to the client or the client telling the lawyer privileged material. There is an argument that the common interest exception to The waiver of attorney-client privilege applies to litigation finance, but it's Mm -hmm. got mixed results at best. And let me say about ethics, too, that I think that the reality is, and I think that people and courts and bar associations and the legal community in general are increasingly realizing that, Litigation finance is ethically a very positive thing. It's it's an access to justice device in the civil context. We Say think, more about. I that. Think of, right, so I think of access to justice. My pro bono work was largely criminal, and so when I think about access to justice, I often think about criminal defense, just because that's what I was doing. But actually, it's you know it's people who don't have the means to be treated fairly in the legal system and in the American litigation system, for better or for worse, it's extremely expensive, and who are wronged, firms who are or companies who are wronged, oftentimes don't have the wherewithal to get just results. I have in front of me a quote from Justice Branston in the New York Supreme Court, who I remember from my practice days, and you may remember, she said recently, litigation funding allows lawsuits to be decided on their merits, and not based on which party has deeper pockets or a stronger appetite for protracted litigation. We enable people who have been, excuse my language, screwed to get their just remedy. And we level the playing field, and I think people increasingly understand that's positive. The I think that part of the knee-jerk, I mean, a lot of people, hopefully fewer have something of a knee-jerk reaction against litigation finance and frankly have a harder and harder time remembering or understanding why that is. But I think it may go back to some sort of historic or some sense that litigation finance encourages or fosters frivolous litigation, right? It's something like the, you know, the campaigns against the trial lawyers in Washington and in my childhood. They're stirring up litigation, right? But that doesn't even withstand scrutiny for one minute because litigation finance firms like mine are in the business of being successful. Our model, our business depends on these cases being meritorious and successful. So the notion that litigation finance is going to encourage frivolous litigation is irrational. You would have to be a horrible litigation finance firm to encourage frivolous litigation finance firms. Don't, bat 1,000, but they bat very high because the cases that they finance are very strong, i.e. meritorious cases. So they're not frivolous. They're never frivolous. A frivolous case wouldn't get funded. Or if a funder funded frivolous cases, it wouldn't be in business long enough to do any damage. What I see is clients coming to good lawyers saying, I have a good case and I want you to do it. And the lawyer is saying, This is how much it will cost. And the client having sticker shock or saying, I don't have that, or isn't there anything else we can do? Can you do a contingency, for example, or something Mm -hmm. else of that sort? And the lawyer saying, no, but there is this thing, litigation finance. And those steps are getting, I think, increasingly collapsed with modern, more forward-leaning litigators where they see it right away. And this, by the way, can happen with new clients or it can happen with pre-existing clients. Say a, a prominent firm that's known principally for defense has a client who does, brings all their defense work to the firm and has a couple of good claims on the plaintiff side, but doesn't want to in, or can't get permission from the corporate structure to spend millions of dollars pursuing Uh, affirmative claims, plaintiff's claims uh, that are valid. They did get screwed. They did get wronged. But as a matter of corporate accounting or finance, the firm doesn't want to outlay millions of dollars in 2021 for the possibility of getting back, being made whole in 2023 or 2024.
1: The time is a huge factor. I mean, I think I also didn't understand that when I started practicing at a big firm. The amount of time that civil litigation takes today it's just insane. I mean, there are cases, not even particularly large cases, that can take years.
0: Absolutely. It's a huge part of what I do is trying to game that out because as anybody who spends any time in finance knows, and I've, I'm quickly learning, you know, the time value of money and the way that the passage of the time affects the value of mm-hmm. investments is just absolutely critical. So yes, the... Duration of litigation in the United States is the subject of <laughs> yeah, the oceans of ink have been spilled about it. Right. Uh, it's unfortunate in my view, although having lived it with you, I mm-hmm. actually understand yeah. how everything takes so long and I don't, I don't quite know the the fix. But for purposes of this conversation, a lot of what we provide is we can eliminate the short-term expense. Right while preserving the long-term uh, benefit or, or mm-hmm. uh, revenue for for companies and that is attracted to them. And that doesn't mean that the lawyers are stirring up litigation, let alone frivolous litigation. What it means is that when a client says to them, hey, I know you do all my defense work. I have these claims. We've been screwed out of millions of dollars What do you think? Can we can you do this for us? We don't want to pay, you know, your regular rack rates. Can you do this for us? Or do we have to go to a plaintiff's firm or get lesser lawyers or do something else? We provide that synthetic solution for Mm -hmm. the claimant and for the counsel. And just returning to the ethical thing, just one more, just one more time. I just wanted to say. In my experience, having been doing this for about a year, my experience has borne this out. This was the number one thing that I dwelled on and talked to people about and considered. So first, it was in the first conversation I had when I was interviewing for this job was the social value or not of this and the ethics of it. And I got very comfortable both with my firm's emphasis on those things and approach to those things, as well as the value of the practice writ large. But my personal experience in the cases that we have financed have been three of them are in my top five positive experiences as a lawyer or in the Mm. world in terms of how I feel at the end of the day for having been a part of something. Our ability to give A slingshot and a rock to a David to take down a Goliath is awesome. And our cases so far, since I've been there, have been overwhelmingly of that
1: character. That brings me to my next question, which is about your path to litigation finance. And I guess I'm curious, I know when you were looking for your next step, you had lots of options and you chose litigation finance. And I guess I'm curious... What drew you to it, either to your firm specifically or to the industry writ large? And what do you think you'd recommend to others who are on that same path that are either positives or negatives for doing what you do?
0: I started a job search for the first time after 10 years of practicing in private practice. And I hadn't been active in considering other jobs or really getting a a concrete sense of what's out there before that. So I learned the landscape and the territory. And I quickly identified four buckets, uh, four types of jobs that a senior associate or even I suppose a mid-level or junior associate from a big law firm could take. One, go to another law firm. Usually, I think from big law people, if they go to another law firm, it's typically either more of a boutique firm or in a different geographical location or both. Mm -hmm. Two, go in-house. Three, go to the government, oftentimes with an eye towards bouncing back into private practice after gaining some valuable and specialized experience. And four, other. And one of my uh, most treasured mentors at Williams and Connolly actually early on encouraged me to think hard about other. A guy who actually, one of the very few people, Williams and Connolly, does transactional work. He's a lawyer, but he does deals for individuals and, and clients. And, you know, as I was thinking about other, and other, by the way, to a big law associate is basically invisible or at least usually not sought out or searched out. I think that as a population, my experience is big law associates are risk averse. They are people who are used to following the rules and doing the next indicated thing. Mm -hmm. lawyering is, in the words of uh, Daniel Day-Lewis in the Lincoln movie, a sturdy profession. I don't think it attracts a lot of people who are thinking creatively or disruptively or entrepreneurially about their careers. And so there's not a lot of other going on in terms of people leaving big law, in my experience, or perhaps law law firms in general. One thing that I wrote down on my little list when I was thinking about this was, you know, litigation finance, question mark. I had been reading about litigation finance for a long time. It pops up on Law 360, you know, I once upon a time, it would pop up from time to time, or in a CLE or something. I think that's interesting. These days, it's on there multiple times a week as mm-hmm. it continues to take a bigger place in the legal world. But I didn't know an entry point. I didn't know anybody who did it. And then through serendipity, Jonah. I, you know, I was out networking. I was on the one-yard line with a few different opportunities across the other three buckets that I described, mm-hmm. all of which had arisen from me talking to my network, talking to my former colleagues, friends, whatever. I, th- I was convinced that the world is mostly about getting in the door, getting your resume out of the stack. And I was convinced that the way that you do that is basically through networks. For some people, that's a, a unfortunately, that's a product of privilege and family. And for other people, that's a product of them having proactively developed networks over the course of their lives. But I was convinced that that's how... Most stuff happens in the world of what a uh, professional movement. And then I saw a posting on GoInHouse.com <laughs> Go that said, head of underwriting for a litigation finance firm in Chicago. And I read the job description and I was like, mm-hmm. I think that's me. Uh, and I'm from Chicago, and I'm barred in Illinois. And I'd always thought, and my wife and I had always said that the most likely place for us to move from D.C. would be Chicago. And the rest is history. And uh, so that's how, in my particular case, I got there. Now, let me, if you don't mind, deconstruct that or, or play Armchair, or, you know, Monday morning, quarterback back to myself. I am so glad. I, so I, was, I spent a period sit, sitting in my house. This was early pandemic debating between going to an awesome firm that I was on the one yard line with or doing this thing. And that was a really interesting time for me. And obviously it entailed a lot of conversations with my wife and friends and and mentors and colleagues. On the one hand, I could go into another firm and try to build a practice and further build a practice and establish myself as a prominent and successful partner at a law firm in Washington, D.C. Or I could take a swing. You know, I could do something different. Mm-hmm. I could bet on myself and a effectively a startup. Statera was about a year old when I joined. And that year had been spent mostly raising capital and establishing the corporate formalities. And they hired me when they were ready to really get, get moving in terms of deploying and investing in the capital. So it's effectively a startup. We have a cool office mm-hmm. in the West Loop of Chicago that's in an old drum factory. I'm
1: sure it has lots of exposed brick. It has ex-
0: lots of exposed brick. It doesn't have any table games or other Silicon Valley type stuff yet, but... I wouldn't rule it out. It's very startup-y. It's very entrepreneurial. It's born out of the vision of the two founders, Chip Hodgkins and Andy Woolman. They started talking about it and decided that and and bet their careers on it, or at least this part of their careers on it. They each had lucrative jobs and they quit them to, to start something that they believed in, to bet on themselves and to try to build something. And... They asked me to be the first hire, and I immediately clicked with them, and I immediately clicked with their vision, and I loved the idea of trying something, of doing something, of taking a swing, betting on something different and new, and betting on myself and not knowing where it's gonna go. To me, that is a rare and opportunity for somebody who is a big law associate, and I'm incredibly grateful for it. And by all indications, we're doing great and I'm confident that we'll succeed. But even if we didn't, and I have every reason to think that we will, I'd still be grateful to have done it, specifically to have, to have tried something, to have broken out of the bubble of sort of big ball. So that was my thought process and my experience. And I am so grateful and excited about it. I mean, I I just think that the opportunities for a big law associate to do something, to get in on the ground floor of something. Mm -hmm. I mean, I respect people hanging their shingle. That's very similar situation, it just in a different realm. But Mm -hmm. to, to get in on the ground floor of something new and exciting and to try to build something by using your experience as a litigator, that's rare.
1: First of all, I just love your story about building networks. I mean, I can't tell you the amount of time I spend with students in my office and all they want to talk about is how do I network? How do I build my network? And it's an important question because I I think building your network is, a, you're absolutely right. Networks often come from a, or start from a place of privilege. Networks can also be built through hustle and relationships and being a good person and not buying into this zero-sum game competitiveness that starts in law school or starts before law school. you know Your classmates are often, the people you're friends with are going to be the people who either are giving business or getting business. But what I love about your story is you did all of that. You did everything you were supposed to, and then it was basically functionally a cold application that changed your life. And I don't want to opine too much about it, but it's one of those things that I don't want anybody listening to take from it, you know, Matt got lucky, right? Matt had one night that changed his life. You had a 10-year career, right? It took 10 years for that one night to to click, to land. And that's what's so amazing to me is you didn't know as you were building these skills that this is what you were going to do. But those skills, you couldn't do your current job without them. And so it's a good reminder, I think, to all of us that just building skills and being good at whatever it is you're doing in the moment can help you, even if you end up not doing it later on.
0: Absolutely. On the networking point, I think that my view is the privilege recedes substantially as you get older. The people that I know with powerful networks, it's not because of their parents or where they grew up. It's because of the way they treated people in law school and the way they treated people in law practice, and the way that, and you know, that they've made an effort to uh, go out to dinner when they were traveling for a case, even though they were tired and had to write up a memo for whatever the deposition was, or made time to go out for a cup of coffee despite having to bill, you know, 16 hours that day. Most of the people I know with the most successful legal networks, it's not a function of. It's, a fun, it's very much something that they built. And the network that I leverage, it's been really fun. As you can imagine, in my current job, I'm interacting with a much broader world. And that, bro- that broad world is full of people that I met along the way. And I didn't quite realize it until I re-entered the broader world. It's been really fun discovering my network in this new role. And and it was in the job search as well. It was uh, It was very gratifying to... Realize how many valuable relationships I had made along the way, and while oftentimes I was too busy or tired to realize it, or maybe pay as much attention to it as I as I would have liked to. Mm-hmm.
1: Where is litigation finance going? Where are you? Where do you think there's going to be need for lawyers, and and how should they get themselves ready for it?
0: There already is an increasing need for associates at these litigation finance firms. Now, I'm not going to. I can't attest to what the experience is like at some of the larger firms, if it, sure. you know, how much it resembles working in a law firm, for example, as opposed to what I'm doing, which is, as I say, very entrepreneurial and startup-y in, in sort of spirit. But there, those jobs are already out there, and I think they're only proliferating. People who have the experience that that I had and that you had, and even less, you know, just a few or five years of experience litigating. You can get a job at a litigation finance firm, evaluating cases. Those jobs are out there and they're going to be out there more and more. I also think that they're getting more and more competitive. When I left, I don't think I knew anybody who worked in that space. Since I've left, I've fielded requests from inquiries from several people who are thinking about, about how to get into it. And just like anything else, as it gets more competitive, I think it's going to be more and more highly credentialed people. All right. Last two questions. The
1: first one is one of the things that strikes me about your current role that you need to be really good at is getting up to speed quickly. I mean, just the thought of having to assess risk in advance on very limited information in an area of law that you don't know, potentially with lawyers you don't know, with opposing counsel you don't know. Talk a little bit about, and not in platitudes, I want to hear it like How do you deal with something brand new and make an assessment?
0: I open a single Word document. I'm less less reliant on notepads than I was in practice. I open a Word document and title it with the name of the deal, and I keep my notes about that deal on that document on an ongoing basis. My favorite approach when it's possible, sometimes we have cases that haven't been filed yet, but oftentimes they have, and they have some history behind them. So, what I is most comfortable is I print out every material pleading in the non law school sense the document that has been filed on the docket that's not just totally ministerial. And I start reading them and I take notes, spot issues to spot, questions to ask, strengths and weaknesses, things I like, things I don't like. So I'll make my way through the pleadings. And all of this is iterative, by the way. Part of the way I see about a case a day, we see about a case a day. So you have to be efficient. And a lot of cases don't even make it, frankly, to me looking at the pleadings because something about them is just facially disqualifying. But if they make it so everything's iterative and I do Mm -hmm. burn deeper dives on as cases look more and more, show more and more potential. But I'll read pleadings. Occasionally, lawyers who are very sophisticated in litigation finance and or advisors or brokers in this space will sometimes prepare memos for funders where they lay out the case, lay out the fat pattern. The good ones will, Mm -hmm. you know, identify the weaknesses and counter arguments and, provide some information. So those are obviously a great head start. And if those are done well by serious people, they can make my job much, much easier. But I read pleadings, read whatever is public or work product under an NDA. I'll read those types of materials. And I have typically one to three calls with some combination of the people in the case, whether it's the counterparty, the lawyer, or both, and ask them the tough questions. Ask them about the issues that I've spotted. Sometimes those remind me of having taken depositions. (laughs) (laughs) They're more cordial than that, certainly, but trying to probe difficult subjects and really get the real answer, but usually not. So I'll read talk to people. There's a lot more phone calls in this job than in my old job. I'm on the phone a lot with lawyers and counterparties. I'll do legal research as required. I'll do other sorts of research as required. And a big part of my job fortunately, because I love this, is, is collaborative. As I said, there are five of us and we make virtually every decision collaboratively. We're in the office. We're like a work pod in the pandemic. We have a round table. And so I will tell them about a case or we've all, you know, they've read a little bit, I've read a lot and we'll talk about the case and I'll identify pros and cons, identify the results of my legal research or factual research my impressions of the uh, answers that we've received from our conversations with the counterparty, my impression of the documents. And we just keep taking one step forward in an iterative basis. And by the time that we've closed the deal, which we try to do in under a month from the intake to the end, hopefully know the cases almost as well as the lawyers, although we'll never know them as well as the lawyers because mm-hmm. of the as I indicated before, the sanctity and special status of the, of the uh, attorney-client
1: sure. privilege. I know you're. A, I know you're a big basketball fan, and so I was trying to think of you like watching the docket, like you're watching a professional basketball game, and the, just being able to see the joy and probably the fear as well. I mean, what I learned in my limited time as a big law lawyer is you're going to have wins, but you're going to have losses, even on the cases you ultimately win. And so I would think it's probably pretty hard to see those. And be like, I can't do anything about it. I just have to watch. But I have to have faith that even if we even if it's 85 to 80, we're gonna win 85 to 80, and that's okay.
0: I don't know. It's so much fun. Yes, there is in a given case, in a given situation, when I get an alert email telling me that there's something new has been filed, that can be hard in the throat moment. Although I think even less so than when we were practicing, I always thought getting an opposition brief was terrifying. Like mm-hmm. waiting to see what they come up with, how I, right. what I missed. And they never actually as bad as, as you feared. But I always thought that experience was scary in practice. So, yeah, there is some of that, but mostly it's just fun. I mean, I get, I don't know, dozens of alerts a day of cases. And here's the really fun part it's not just cases that we've funded, but it's ones that we've passed on. And right. so that's, I think, very valuable to track that we might like yeah. a decision but also pretty fun Can take some gratification in seeing a case fall flat for a reason that I've identified. And if somebody succeeds for, you know, what we thought was against steep odds, and that's not a bad feeling. That's a, you know, I'm happy for them. So it's really fun. I've found the monitoring to be very fun
1: yeah Um, it also just strikes me it's a good way to get up to speed right you you can learn from the cases you pass on and the cases that you don't that's that seems very smart to me
0: i think i'm in a unique i've been thinking about it i don't know who else really has this experience i mean i'm observing as much litigation in the united states right now as any job i can think of i have a, a weird and i think wonderful job of just watching litigation across the country and I hope you can not help to gain some wisdom and some valuable experience from that. I mean, in-house counsel have that experience to a certain extent, but it's only their cases. Right. So depending on- Right, but you're
1: looking at it with a much broader lens. All right, last question is the same question I ask everybody when we're finishing these up, which is if you had one piece of advice to give a new lawyer, a law student, someone just, just entering our profession, something that either you've heard from somebody else or something that you've been thinking about for yourself, what would that advice be?
0: I would say, and I I wouldn't say that I've done a good job of this in my run, but I nonetheless would offer this as my lesson learned, is to maintain agency. And by that, I mean, I think that the types of people who go into big law uh, or just law practice in general, to the extent they're like me, and I think they mostly are tend to do the next indicated thing, tend to be pretty risk averse, um, and tend to be very busy. And years go by that way. And it's something of the conveyor belt. Starts with OCI, then clerkships, then you try to catch on with the best firm you can, then you're an associate, and you're trying to get a good review, and so on and so on. And I know this from, from speaking to people with, across different firms who are at the end of their career. And then when I made my move, they said, geez, I've often wondered what my life would have been if I had, you know, done something else. Because I think that you can just stay on the conveyor belt. Mm -hmm. And there's a reason for the conveyor belt leads to, if you make partner at a big law firm, it leads to millions of dollars and incredible job security. But I would encourage people to maintain agency. And what I mean by that particularly is take stock of the experience you're getting, right? Check in from time to time and think about whether you're actually having the experience that you want and that you deserve. I would say survey, this is another thing I didn't do very much, but I would survey the landscape of what's out there. Listen to your podcast, look at job boards, And just see what it's, there's nothing disloyal or wrong about just familiarizing yourself with what the broader legal market looks like. I think that it's um, a good idea, something I didn't do very much. I would say read the trade press, which I did do. I always had a few Law360 alerts set up just to keep abreast of the legal world more generally. Listen to podcasts about lawyering. Network. So when you're on the road, one of the most prominent lawyers at Williamson Connolly's piece of advice or, or life lesson was every business trip make have a an appointment to have dinner or lunch with somebody doesn't matter how busy you are with work if you're in San Francisco find your old law school classmate and have so and that'll help you keep abreast of mm-hmm. the world outside of your bubble and beyond the blinders of, of working a really difficult big law job and then Decide, think about whether you want to take a strategic leap, take a risk, take a swing, do something different. That could be join an administration, join a campaign. That could be hang a shingle. I know people have done all of these things. These are examples of things that I've seen people do out of mid and senior associate ranks. You know, do something, take a risk, bet on yourself, do something different. I'm not saying you should do that. I think that for a lot of people, being a partner at a big law firm is potentially the optimal outcome, but I'm saying consider it.
1: Get an active choice yes. as opposed to a default choice.
0: Exactly. I did that belatedly and it's so far my favorite decision I've made uh, in my professional life. So yeah, I would say I maintain that. agency and don't just, don't just keep your head down on the conveyor belt.
1: Again, that was Matt Blumenstein, head of underwriting and deputy GC at Stratera Capital in Chicago. I want to thank Matt for his helpful introduction to litigation finance and his wise words about the importance of betting on yourself and taking a swing. As always, if you've enjoyed the episode, I hope you'll consider subscribing. And if you have comments or ideas, I can always be reached at howilawyer at gmail.com or at Jonah Perlin on Twitter. Thanks to Matt. Thanks for listening and have a great week.